Welcome to Finding Medina. Episode 6, The Battle of Rocio. I'm Brandon Seal. Throughout September and October of 1812, Texas Governor Manuel Salcedo anxiously followed the advance of Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara's Republican Army of the North across his province. After the Republicans had taken Nacogdoches, Governor Salcedo had assumed that they would march on San Antonio, the capital of Texas and the gateway to the rest of Mexico. Salcedo had marched out himself with maybe 1,000 or so Spanish regulars, presidials, and militia, intent on ambushing the Republicans just as they crossed the Guadalupe River. The Republicans, however, captured one of his spies, quote, on the top of a tree, looking out, but not vigilant enough to save himself, end quote, one Republican recalled mockingly. From the spy, and perhaps also from some of their Tonkawa allies scouting ahead, the Republicans learned of the governor's trap on the Guadalupe. In a brilliant move, Gutierrez de Lara swung the Republican army clear around Governor Salcedo's force and set a course toward Goliad, then known as La Bahia. Governor Salcedo learned of their detour and raced south to catch up to them, but not before the Republicans captured the town on November 7, 1812. The second and third largest communities in Texas had now fallen to Gutierrez de Lara, barely three months after he had crossed the Sabine. And in some ways, taking Goliad placed the Republicans in a stronger position than they would have been in had they captured San Antonio first. From Goliad, they controlled Salcedo's access to the sea and threatened to cut off his supply lines down to the interior, all the while poised to march on his provincial capital if Salcedo left it undefended. And as Gutierrez de Lara built on his own success, more and more recruits flocked to his banner. Even the small royalist force in Goliad that Gutierrez de Lara had just defeated came over to his side. Governor Salcedo may have been tactically bested for the moment, but it didn't seem to dampen his resolve. He was, after all, the man who had put an end to Father Hidalgo's revolt. He would surely crush Gutierrez de Lara's as well. His force arrived in Goliad six days after the Republicans, on November 13th, and Governor Salcedo knew how to make an entrance. His cavalry trotted in front of the Republican lines in full parade attire, while his infantry set up three camps forming a triangular perimeter around the town. On the way in, he had captured an unfortunate Republican scout, whom he ordered bound and dragged to death around the town, like Hector around the walls of Troy, in full view but just beyond the reach of the hold-up Republicans. Governor Salcedo then followed through in what was becoming his signature move. He severed the head of the dead Republican and mounted it on a lance as a reminder to the other rebels of what awaited them. Understandably, this display, quote, dampened the ardor, end quote, of the Republicans considerably, according to one participant. The Republicans' merry revolutionary jaunt from the Sabine had just gotten real. Conditions in the besieged town quickly deteriorated. Food ran out. Lice broke out. Some men deserted. Some, including McGee, tried to negotiate a surrender, though the rest of the men in the Republican army refused to go along when they found out the terms offered required handing over Gutierrez de Lara and the Tejanos 
to Salcedo's well-known mercy. McGee then died, either of a fever or from poisoning at the hands of his own men. Gutierrez de Lara reached out in all directions for help, including to U.S. agents in Louisiana, whom he encouraged to annex Texas as far as Goliad as a pretext for coming to their aid. The request went unheeded. At one point, the entire army was saved from starvation only when, quote, an obscure Mexican, dark as an Indian, but little known or noticed in the ranks, at length proposed that he might be allowed to take a small party with him and bring in beef from the country, end quote. He succeeded and brought in 50 or so head of cattle, which would sustain the Republicans through the winter as they watched Governor Salcedo's force grow larger. At one point, Royalists outnumbered the Republicans almost two to one. Yet miraculously, each day found the Royalists even weaker than the Republicans. Many of Governor Salcedo's 1,500 men were, in fact, conscripts without any particular antipathy toward the Republicans. Many more harbored active sympathies with them, in fact. As fast as reinforcements came in, many of them went out, some directly into Gutierrez de Lara's ranks. Most notable amongst these royalists, aiding and abetting the Republican cause, was San Antonian José Francisco Ruiz. Ruiz commanded the Bear Royal Presidio Unit, but was in contact throughout most of the siege with Gutierrez de Lara and the Republicans. Each day brought a new minor skirmish, more than two dozen of them in total, often provoked by the most mundane of events, like hungry Republicans chasing a cow all the way to Royalist lines, or Republicans trying to sneak up on the Royalist horse herd. Yet each time, the Republicans seemed to come out a little bit ahead in terms of body count and territory controlled. The Republicans grew bolder and began to send out raiding parties to capture and kill Royalists at night. Gutierrez de Lara counseled his men to make their shots count, and their superior marksmanship began to exact a toll on the royalist morale. And behind the lines, the Republicans' Native American allies, Comanches in this instance, picked up their raiding activities on San Antonio and on royalist supply lines, stealing thousands of heads of livestock destined for Salcedo's army. At the same time, Governor Salcedo was never quite able to cut off supplies from getting into Goliad, and soon the primary source of reinforcements for the Republicans during the siege were deserters coming from Salcedo's besieging army. Governor Salcedo realized that his army was dissolving beneath him and knew that he needed to bring things to a head. And so on February 10th, 1813, about three months after the siege began, he ordered an assault of the town under cover of darkness. No sooner had the royalists drawn within cannon range, however, than they were detected by an alert Miguel Menchaca, posted on lookout with one of the American officers. Together, they sounded the alarm and rallied their comrades, who formed into battle lines and began to assault the assaulters, driving them back with surprising force. Salcedo tried again three days later, and was resoundingly repulsed. The Republicans suddenly appreciated their strength. The momentum had turned.
So I'm going to go ahead and assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you know who Stephen F. Austin is. What you may not know is that in addition to his many other talents, Stephen F. Austin was also an accomplished cartographer. And Stephen F. Austin clearly knew where the Battle of Medina took place. I have copies of several different maps that were either created by or derived from maps created by Stephen F. Austin, Don Esteban, as he called himself at the time. So significant a landmark were the bones of the dead near the old Battle of Medina site that Austin marked it on nearly all of his maps with some variation of Derrota de los Republicanos, or Republicans Defeated. Created for the most part between 1822 and 1829, all of Austin's maps placed the battle in the middle of the Encinal de Medina, which he also occasionally marked. And all of them placed the battle on the road to Laredo, more or less equidistant between the Medina River and Las Gallinas Creek, which he calls Atascoso Creek. If anything, we could say that he perhaps favored the Las Gallinas half of the 10-mile expanse separating the Medina and Las Gallinas, though he doesn't zoom in enough in his maps for us to be any more precise than that. So let's add in another map maker and see if we can triangulate on this. In 1815, just two years after the battle, a Spanish mapping expedition came through this exact area. Juan Pedro Walker, born John Peter Walker in New Orleans, was the expedition's surveyor. In his journal, on the afternoon of October 5, 1815, he noted the following. 5.15. Cross the Medina River. 7 o'clock. Field of the Battle of Medina. Huesos y calaveras por espacio de cerca de una legua. Bones and skeletons for the space of about a league. 8.50 p.m. We stopped near Rancheria. So let's do some quick math. So Walker had started the morning in downtown San Antonio, stopped for several hours midday, then resumed his journey around 4 p.m., hitting the Medina at 5.15 and making Rancherias by 8.50. In total, looking back at the whole day, he covered about 30 miles in a little over 7 hours, or about 14 minutes per mile over the course of the day. So if Walker's diary indicates that they encountered the battlefield 105 minutes after crossing the Medina River, that would have put him 7 or 8 miles south of the Medina River on the Laredo Road. That fits perfectly with Austin's maps. Of course, if only we knew where the Laredo Road was. This is the same problem we had before. And this is the challenge with trying to use these roads to find the battlefield. These roads changed all the time. Austin's maps actually offer some of the best proof of this. Some of his maps pretty clearly show the lower Presidio Road separate from the Laredo Road. Yet some of his maps only show one road. Some show two roads diverging south of the Medina. Some show the divergence north of the Medina. And others still show two roads coming out of San Antonio and then converging south of the Medina River. So which one of these was the Laredo Road in 1813? Check out these maps, by the way, on our Rivard Report webpage. This feels familiar, doesn't it? A promising new lead in the search for the Battle of Medina 
that resolves itself into only more ambiguity. And the map thing is particularly frustrating because the battle site seems to be so clearly marked on them. X should mark the spot, shouldn't it? At this point, our whole little research team, Crystal, Rob, Zach, me, and many others that we'd pulled in, were frustrated and frankly tired of the purely academic approach to this exercise. Though perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, if this mystery had been solvable just from the archival record alone, someone would have already done it. We knew that we needed to get out into the field and start digging or do something to anchor our search in something real. Yet despite continued mailers and conversations with locals, we still hadn't been able to lay hands on any artifacts from the battle, or from the period even. Not a single bullet, button, or horseshoe nail. But maybe we hadn't been looking hard enough. During the course of this project, my mind had drifted back repeatedly to El Carmen Church in Lozoya. Recall that this was the first place that we looked when we surveyed the locations that claimed connections to the battle. We didn't necessarily think that the battle had occurred there. It was far too close to the Medina River for that. But it claimed to be the burial site of at least Arredondo's royalist dead from the battle. And if the royalists had buried their dead on that spot and camped there after the battle, perhaps it meant that the Republicans had camped there the night before that it was a good spot to camp, or that it was at least the prevailing route in 1813. Perhaps that was a clue as to which road each of these armies considered to be the Laredo Road in 1813. I talk frequently with my friend Fred Martinez, parishioner, descendant of one of the original land grantees in the area, and former Bear County Historical Commissioner that we mentioned in Episode 3 of this season. Over lunch one day, I voiced my frustration to Fred at our inability to find artifacts and my theory that somewhere near El Carmen Church might be the best place to start looking. You know that they found a bunch of old Spanish weapons here when they tore down the high bridge in the 1950s, Fred said, pointing to the FM 1937 crossing of the Medina River just below El Carmen Church. Uh, No, I responded, I had not known that. One of the great things about Fred is that he can cite you the source of almost every fact that he knows. And true to form in this instance, he told me where to look. Actually, he gave me a copy of the book. In the 1960s and 70s, journalist Ed Sires published a column that was syndicated in many Texas newspapers called Off the Beaten Trail. In one of these installments, he visits Lozoya and interviews residents about what they know about the Battle of Medina. I love his concluding paragraph from this column for the lead that it gives us, yet also for the challenge that it poses to those of us trying to tell this story. I'll quote it here at length. Quote, Losoya resident Ella Lee Jasper can tell you of the graves she found up where the Medina joins the San Antonio, of the rusting Spanish arms turned up when they made the cut for the new bridge. San Antonio historians, if they work at it, can tell you a lot more. Much always can be told, and should be remembered, when many men die believing something. End quote. I knew now where I wanted to dig. Right between El Carmen Church and the old high bridge in Losoya, 
right on that lovely little hay farm that Alberto and I had seen from the air in episode 5. On February 10th and on February 13th, 1813, Governor Manuel Salcedo had assaulted the Republican Army of the North entrenched in Goliad. Both times, he was repulsed, and badly. Soon, what had been an irregular trickle of men deserting from his ranks became a steady stream, and Comanches allied with the Republicans increased their attacks on his supply lines and on his capital. Governor Salcedo was beaten, and he had the good sense to realize it before the situation spun too far out of control. On February 19th, he lifted the siege of Goliad and undertook a not altogether orderly retreat back to San Antonio, leaving behind several hundred of his men who either couldn't or wouldn't come along. Many of them, in fact, marched directly into the Republican ranks. Miguel Menchaca, leading the mounted Tejanos in the Republican Army of the North, harassed Salcedo and his royalist army all the way back to their provincial capital, stealing horses and supplies wherever he could, while the rest of the Republican army regrouped and prepared to resume the offensive. A few hundred Cushada, Lipan Apaches, and Tonkawas soon rode into the Republican camp under the command of James Gaines, one of Gutierrez de Lara's first followers in Louisiana, who had also helped him recruit many of the Americans now serving under him. All in, counting Tejanos, Native Americans, and Americans, the Republican army now numbered as many as 1,000 men. And on March 19, 1813, they marched out of Goliad, bound for San Antonio. Foreshadowing the tactics of the later Battle of Medina, Governor Salcedo elected to lay an ambush for the approaching Republicans about eight miles southeast of town, perhaps to protect the town from battle, or perhaps because he mistrusted the loyalty of the townsfolk in the event of a siege. On the morning of March 19, 1813, Salcedo's 1,200-man Republican army took up position just outside modern-day Loop 410, near where Rocio Creek enters Salado Creek, on the north side of the Goliad Road. Morale in Salcedo's army must have been low. In addition to having just lost the three-month siege of Goliad, the Spanish regulars in the army probably no longer trusted the conscripted militia and local presidio units lined up beside them. To date, most of the Tejano militiamen called up by Salcedo into royal service had proven themselves less than committed to the royalist cause and the commander of the San Antonio Presidials, José Francisco Ruiz, had been actively passing information for some time now to Gutiérrez de Lara, whose army he would be a part of before the month was out. Around midday on that March 29, 1813, the Republican army came into view of the Royalists lying in ambush. The Royalists held their fire as the Republicans filed past. With impressive discipline, the Royalists didn't give up their position until they had almost the entire Republican force in front of them. Indeed, the first indication that the Republicans seemed to have had of a Royalist presence in the area 
was when royalist artillery tore into their rear at just a few hundred yards range. The surprised Republicans halted their march and scurried around trying to locate their enemy. They absorbed the opening attack as best they could, eventually finding cover in the brush along the road where they drew up their battle line. Separated now by only a small plane, the armies began to trade insults with each other. A certain Colonel Montero in the Royalist Army singled out Colonel Reuben Ross amongst the American volunteers and called him out in Homeric fashion for a personal duel. Quote, Ross advanced, and they slashed away upon each other with their sabers, and in their furious charge upon each other, as Montero's horse passed the other, Montero was shot down. The general action now commenced, end quote. The mounted Tejanos attacked the Royalist right, while the Native American allies tried to turn the Royalist left, and the American infantrymen charged the center on foot. San Antonio Miguel Menchaca was in the thickest of the fighting and distinguished himself for bravery, as he had during the siege of Goliad and in the pursuit of the Royalists back to San Antonio. The action at the Battle of Rocio, we are told, was, quote, brief, but very bloody, end quote. With less than 1,000 men, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara's Republican Army of the North overwhelmed Governor Salcedo's 1,200-man Royalist force that day at the Battle of Rocio. The Republicans lost only six men killed and 26 men wounded, to some 330 killed and 60 captured of the Royalists. The Royalist force in Texas dissolved after the battle, some coming over to the Republican side, many others fleeing toward the interior of Mexico. Two days after the Battle of Rocio, on April 1st, 1813, the Republican Army of the North entered San Antonio. Still refusing to recognize the legitimacy of Gutierrez de Lara's command, Governor Salcedo and his officers tried to turn themselves over to the Americans. The American officers, however, uniformly refused and pointed the Spaniards to their commander-in-chief. Gutierrez de Lara recalled in later years, quote, Here before me, I had the glory to see humiliated at my feet all the despotism and arrogance of Europe, end quote. Salcedo and the royalist officers were sentenced to death in rapidly convened kangaroo courts. Some in the Republican army protested the lack of due process, while others objected out of practical concern that executing the Spaniards might provoke reprisals or strengthen royalist resolve. After much pleading by locals and others, Gutierrez de Lara agreed to commute the royalist sentences to exile and ordered the prisoners march to Matagorda Bay, where a ship would carry them off. Royalists down in central Mexico were shocked by the Republican victory in Texas. Father Hidalgo's revolt had, they thought, been thoroughly crushed. Now, his ghost had returned and was riding down on them from the north. Rebels had established control over an entire province. And though it may have been one of the poorest, most distant, and least populated provinces in all of New Spain, it was the province with open supply lines to a sympathetic United States. Most of the royalist infrastructure in New Spain was paralyzed as to what to do next. 
Their forces were already spread thin throughout Mexico, and the mass defections of Salcedo's army boded poorly for any new attempts to conscript men and send them off to a rebel frontier. The royalist commander of a fearsome regiment of Spanish regulars from Veracruz, however, didn't hesitate. His peninsular heart burned with hatred for these provincial revolutionaries, whose comrades he had so effectively crushed over the last few years in San Luis Potosí and Tamaulipas. Without waiting for orders from the viceroy, or even asking for them, Joaquín de Arredondo moved his headquarters to Laredo, where he began amassing forces and planning the reconquest of Texas. On the next Finding Medina. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our Rivard Report webpage for this episode, where you can find links to Stephen F. Austin's maps of the Battle of Medina, as well as other relevant information. Also, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you consume your podcasts and leave a review for us. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaitan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaitan.tripod.com. Thanks to my SWCA environmental research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as to San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stauffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, our unofficial Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our unofficial all-other-document finder. And for more information about our podcasts and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>